Hi, this is Cassius Velicella, and you're listening to Homeroom, a podcast dedicated to everything startup-related. My guest today is Ali Juwani. Ali is the co-founder and CEO of Rally Video. If Zoom is video for business, Rally is video for fun and social events. The team was also part of Y Combinator's Summer 20 batch, and we're really excited to hear Ali's perspective on the more personal parts of entrepreneurship. You were educated in Canada. I believe you went to Western. What was the scene like there? How exactly did you arrive at where you are today? And what were some of the, I guess, big questions and big tests that you had to go through to arrive where you are? Um, big questions and big tests. It's a very, uh, it's a very interesting question. I, I want to start by saying that I think, um, so both my grandparents were entrepreneurs and I always wanted to be like them when I was growing up. And I saw that there was such like praise held for them in my family. Like they were all like, like my uncles were bankers, but you know, my grandparents were entrepreneurs. And so everyone was Mm -hmm. like, Oh, like entrepreneurs are cool. Whereas bankers, maybe not so much. And, um, enough, yeah. and thinking about that, I was like, well, do I want to be a, a cool entrepreneur? Or do I want to be like a lame banker? And that, that kind of facilitated a lot of like thought and energy into like, well, I think entrepreneurship is what I want to do. And like when I was in high school at the time, I was thinking, well, how do I best become a great business person? And it mm-hmm. seemed very obvious. And when things seem too obvious, they're probably not that obvious. <laughs> um, right. But it was like studying business. And I was like, oh, studying business makes a lot of sense. In hindsight, I probably should have taken like engineering or something more technical because that's kind of where the, the future has ended up being. But um, took business, found the best business school I could, which at the time seemed like Western and Ivy was, uh, and then was lucky enough to, to get into both Western and eventually into Ivy. And uh, and it was great. Like I, The one thing that I'm sure you can relate to at Queens is when you're in high school, the ambition of people in high school is not as big as the ambition of people who are in university and probably not as big as people who are actually in uh, Ivy or Queens or like some of the other MBA programs. Um, and so being around people who like really wanted to change the world and really make an impact really helped me feel like this is the right place. Yeah, hundred percent. Like, did you, cause we hear about institutions like Stanford where classmates year after year are dropping out and starting their own companies. And I feel like that's amazing on one level. But on another level, it can make some people feel feel like they have to do it for the sake of it. And was there kind of that balance at Western with that entrepreneurial scene, but as well, you know, maybe there wasn't as many people doing it, so you had a little bit of leeway and you could experiment a bit more and there wasn't that pressure. Am I, is yeah. that fair to say? L- let me answer it a different way. I think for a very long time in my life, I was chasing the the status and trying to be like everybody else which is why i want to go to a name brand school which is why i want to do the name brand education and right. get a name brand job after and what i realized very maybe later than i should have is that it's better to try and be contrarian it's better to try and forge your own path and i think that the people that are dropping out i i mean i don't i don't know too many dropouts but i would assume that the people that are dropping out are doing it with enough thought and rigor in terms of like is this the best education for them? And is this the right way to, to build a, uh, a foundation for their career, whether it's a business that they want to do or whether it's something else? Yeah, definitely. That makes sense. Like, was there, I guess, that misalignment of what you wanted to be versus what you wanted to do? And how did you kind of figure that out 
along the way? What were the questions that you asked yourself? I think the, the goal was always to be an entrepreneur, but the path to entrepreneurship was always very vague. And so ironically, I always thought I had to go and like become a consultant or like go to BCG or McKinsey right. or one of those companies yeah. um, <laughs> and, you know, learn how to like make, make Excel like a really good friend of mine and like try to like think like them. And, um, and all the CEOs that I, that I saw, I would like do a, a fact check on their careers because LinkedIn would allow you to do that. And I'd be like, oh, like, this was this person went to McKinsey. So clearly McKinsey is like the thing that I should do. For sure. And I think yeah. that that was that validation was completely false. And I think that if I, if I had just not cared about the badges and the reputation and what actually, uh, and focus on what actually matters to me, then I probably would have been a little bit ahead, a little bit farther ahead than I am today. Um, and I think that we, when you go to university, you almost force yourself into that group think mindset. And I think that's where dropping out really makes a lot of sense to me because you're around all these people, whether it's Stanford or Queens or Western, and they all want very similar things. They all want to end up at Goldman Sachs or Google or Facebook. And if everybody around you wants that, then the prestige flags to get you there are also very similar, right? So like mm-hmm. the milestones become very similar, like, oh, you got an internship at Google or, oh, like you um, did this hackathon or like, oh, you did this like case study and whatnot. And so you start to feel proud of things that may not align with your values, but may align with the group's values that you're trying to satisfy. And then as you get older and older, and as you do more and more, you start to realize that like that group doesn't really matter to you because it's not aligned with the end goal that you're trying to achieve, which in my case was building a business. Yeah, for sure. Can you talk about some of your work in product management and how that translated into Rally? Like what's the story behind Rally? I, I, I know for sure a lot of people are curious about that. Uh, so Rally started about a year and a half ago um, right before doing Rally, I was I spent about six months working at a fantastic company called Rose Rocket, also based out of Toronto. Um, I was doing product management there, and um, and on and they were like the CEO was really nice. He was like, "Look, do half your time on product management with Rose Rocket, and then do half your time working on whatever startup you want to work on." And so that half the time doing the startup was like a lot of fun, but it was leading to like nothing. Like all my ideas ended up failing, and like I couldn't actually figure out what I wanted to do. And then the pandemic hits and I gather like two of my friends and I'm like, this is the absolute best time to build a business. There's never going to be a better time. I mean, maybe there will be a better time, but like we got to wait till like the next like recession or whatever change For sure. in economic value. And so uh, we were like, we got to build something here. What do we build? And so like we spent about a week just brainstorming back and forth. And then we came to the conclusion that everyone is stuck at home. We all love being social. Let's build a social application to bring people together. And we came up with this video application and we thought to ourselves, well, if Zoom is going to be video for business, Rally can be video for fun. And so right. we essentially were like, let's build that fun application and see how, see where we can take it. Um, but to your question about how product management related to Rally, I, I think I think product is probably the closest thing that you would get to actually building a business um, in the sense that if you're in the right company and the right team, you get to actually manage a bunch of really smart engineers and work with some, you know, really smart designers and other people who are touching a specific feature or category of the business right. that then allows you to understand what it takes to sell internally, um, you know, negotiate deadlines and, and terms and, and really just work with a variety of people and understand how they think. Because when you're, when you're a product manager, you're talking to marketers to figure out how to sell the product, but you're also talking to engineers to figure out how to build the product. And so you've got to switch your brain from one capacity to the other which is very similar to being a CEO where you got to, again, have those mental switches. 
Right. Absolutely. Like one thing I wanted to talk about is I've actually interviewed Justin Bailey um, from Rose Rocket. We spoke a couple weeks ago. Awesome guy. Like amazing story about how he came up as well. Um, I was also watching an interview with Sam Altman and he was saying that one of the biggest difficulties about being a founder is is whose advice and when to trust it. So what were some interactions like with not only Justin, but maybe mentors, people along the way that got you to have a clear vision about what would work for a business and what might not? It's a very good question, man. And, and the irony is when I was leaving Rose Rocket, there's a lot of people at the time who were saying this is probably the worst time to start a business. <laughs> and, uh, and that wasn't everybody, but that was, that was enough people to help me really think through whether or not this is a good idea. Does that motivate um, you, like people telling you no? Like kind of, the more people that tell me no, the more excited I get about it? It, it depends who's telling me no. Like, Fair enough. Uh, Fair enough. Know, but, but yeah, like I, I, I do, sometimes I'm motivated by people who, who turn me down. Um, but, but to your question, I think it's, I think ultimately you got to be the decision maker. You got to be the CEO of your own life. Mm-hmm. And so you really got to think through whether or not the feedback that you're getting actually makes sense. And it's, it's hard to say whether it will or it doesn't. At some point, you just got to take the, the plunge. Yeah. For, what would you say is the best piece of advice you've gotten? Maybe not with Rally, but just in general in, your, in that entrepreneurial journey. Uh, let's save that for the end. Cause I've got to think of a good, a good one. No, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I, one other question I had was when it came to, because we're talking about zoom for business rally for, um, rally for life, rally for fun. What was the iteration like with that? Because I, I, obviously you want to create something unique, uh, different from zoom, Yeah. but, uh, but principally they, they are both video sharing tools. Yeah. Um, it, it's funny you ask that because when we, so when we first started, when we first launched, our very first actual launch was um, my co-founder at the time, his birthday, his birthday party, right? So he had an online oh, that's birthday awesome. party. He did it on rally and, you know, 30, 40 people showed up and they were like, holy crap, this is super cool. And we were like, oh my God, we're going to build video for birthday parties. And then I was like, how big is that market? And it's like, who would want to pay to host an online <laughs> birthday party? Right? Fair um, so then I was like, well, what's the closest thing to a birthday party? And to me at the time, it was like, let's go into concerts and comedy. And so we got a bunch of comedians. We got them to try out Rally. Uh, we got we went to like Ryerson and got their like music association, their karaoke groups to all join Rally. Dude, that's and then awesome. And we went to YC. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> you, you, you would think that, right? Um, but we went, to, we went to YC and we're like, we're going to be Zoom for comedy. And uh, the YC partners almost laughed at us. They were like, dude, that market is so small. How are you guys going to do this? This doesn't seem like, you know, you got this is up your alley. And so we were like, oh, true. And they're like, you're not getting into YC as Zoom for comedy. Like, you guys got to go back and, like, think about this some more. So we went back and we were like, well, what can we be? And we were like, well, comedy is a type of event. So let's think even bigger. And that's where events came in. We're like, right. Why don't we be like Zoom for social events, Zoom for hangouts, Zoom for networking, career fairs, things of that nature. Uh, and that's when it was like, okay, that sounds like a much bigger pitch. And then we went back to YC for a second interview, which I guess it was rare at the time. I'm hearing it's more common now, but they rejected us the first interview. And then four weeks later, they gave us a second interview. And then we were like, we're Zoom for events. And they were like, okay, this makes sense. And then six months later, Zoom came out with events and we were like, time to pivot again. Um, right. But- it's the nature of the beast, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I was even reading that a third of people that get accepted 
well, a third of individuals that got accepted at the last YC batch, they actually applied before and got denied. So, like, what is that, when you're speaking to the YC founders, what was that iteration like? Like, what were those conversations? Um, what did those entail? I'm really curious. They're, they're very, very quick conversations. They, you know, they usually last around, like an interview is around 10 minutes, hours yeah. probably average around like 11 or 12. But in these interviews, they're very quick with feedback. And it's usually like one sentence or two sentences that really just, you think about it after and you're like, that makes a lot of sense, right? So like they might ask us like unit economics and be like, do, do the numbers make sense to you? How frequent of a problem is this, right? Right. Um, and they ask you things like, well, what about your video infrastructure? Like, is this going to support a thousand people off the gate? And you're like, no. And they're like, do comedians want a thousand people or do they want 200 people? And then you start to like really think like, hey, the, these are questions we should have asked ourselves. And we did, but we convinced ourselves that we knew the answer. But when a third party looks at your product and asks you the question, you're like, oh, this, this is a good question to really think about. That makes sense. Was it a little bit more difficult with those conversations given that, because you were in the summer 20 batch, I believe COVID had a COVID kind of happened in the spring. So were you down in Mountain View at that time or was it exclusively online? Have not, have not met any of the YC people in person. Um, so yeah, just been working, working and doing the YC thing remotely. What, what was like the coolest part about that then? Um, because yes, it, it, it does kind of suck that you never got the chance to meet them, but at the same time, I've heard there's multiple Slack channels, numbers are exchanged all the time, and that network does last forever. So, like, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I think I think the the absolute best thing is just how reachable everybody is. Everybody, you don't get super close friends like I think you would in a regular YC batch. Um, but what you do get instead is like. A larger group of people who you can ask questions to and partners that you can quickly slack message and, and get responses for so like it, it's a very fast way of getting some questions answered and you know like there's been situations that we've had um that is it would probably require like a, a half an hour conversation you'd have to find the person go have coffee with them whatever but sometimes you could just type a really long slack message and you get like a really good response or they could like pick up the phone and be like this is a five minute call let's just do this and that yeah. kind of helped. That's awesome. That's awesome. Who, which, which partners did you have in your batch, by the way? Um, there's a lot of partners in our batch, but for us specifically, we had four sorry, partners. Who, who were the partners on your team? Um, uh, so we had Michael Seibel, Harge Tagar, uh, Jared Friedman, Friedberg, and uh, uh, Yuri. I forgot his last name. It starts with an L, but yeah. How was working with Michael? I've watched like way too many interviews with him. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think ultimately Michael is a very good person, but his advice is very rough. Um, it's a very bitter pill taking his advice and you really have to appreciate it for what it is because it's got a lot of forethought that unveils itself as time goes on. I don't know if that was a good answer, but basically it's tough advice. No, for sure. Like, <sighs> The thing, the thing that I'm really hearing with some of this, like the people I'm speaking to is, well, what you mentioned before, right? It's even the party as the launch. It's not about resources. It's about resourcefulness. And that's one thing I've kind of noticed with all the YC companies. Um, like, it, I guess for advice for people that are looking to do it, like, what did you, what were they most impressed by with what you were doing at the time? 
given that they asked you to, you know, step away and then come back in four weeks? So I'll tell you what they're most impressed with, but I don't think that you should use that as, as a barometer for your own successes, uh, for, for those listening and, and even for yourself. But, um, I think for us, it was like how quickly we were able to take their advice and apply it and the, the speed at which we had built a solution, you know, COVID hit, COVID shut down a bunch of stuff. I think like March 17th or, or that weekend for us, we were able to host a party like end of March, host a couple other parties by end of April. Mm-hmm. And so it was very, like very quick. Like we essentially built rally in two weeks. We like put it out to market. Um, and so like, I think the speed of launch and how quickly we were able to learn and, and iterate based on feedback was, was something that impressed them. But I think in general, like if you're going to apply to something like YC or even just do a startup in general, like there's different people have different X factors, right? Some people I've met in YC are like very, very smart because they've had like significant domain expertise. Some people are right. just very, very kind people. I, I don't think that you should take, you know, one isolated criteria and assume that that's the reason that you get into YC. Yeah, that's fair. I, I think that's very true. Like one of the things that I was reading about as well is that a big thing is it's not about the plan. It's kind of like, sorry, let me say that one more time. Um, uh, it's less about the plan and how much you ideate. Like, like the business plan isn't how it's going to go. It's how you think about the problem. And I, I guess when it comes to like pitches and things like that, how did it evolve over time? And what were some of the things that you noticed that um, you, you maybe thought worked originally and then you had be, maybe a eureka moment and you changed things up? Um, well, to be honest, I, I cater the pitch to the audience quite often. So it really depends on who I was selling to at the time when it comes to the event space. Like, for example, some universities, they wanted, like, an online career fair solution. So I would, like, pitch it differently. Um, and then some people would want, like, uh, a sales kickoff, and I'd pitch it differently. And so it would just depend on, on the audience on the audience member. Um, but I think as, as time evolved, like, it, it, the essence of a pitch comes from, like, hours and hours and days and days spending building your business. And so... Ironically, that the pitch just depends on like all the new information you've gathered as you continue to build your business. That's true. That's very true. Like I was, I was actually speaking with um, Chen Wang. So he created a company called Natoda with his co-founder, and he was part of that summer twenty batch as well. And yep. he ta- he talked about the importance of of fake wins, and he gave the example of for his team, they felt that they had product market fit when their website was blowing up and they were getting users, but it turned out they didn't. Like, what role do you think that plays in, you know, giving you a bit of that extra gas at the end of the day? Because founders' depression is a very real thing. You've got your head down all the time. Like, what are the importance of, like, fake wins and even small wins as well? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Do you kind of agree with what he was saying? Well, I think you you should definitely celebrate whatever win you can. And I think, like... It's so it's so hard to be an entrepreneur sometimes that sometimes you take any win and you just want to like celebrate it. And I think as entrepreneurs, we normally forget to do that because we're so heads down on the work. Um, and we need somebody else to remind us that like, you know, we've actually come pretty far, right? And like, I'm, I'm glad I've got a group of advisors and people who like, when I speak to them about problems, usually at the end of the call, they're like, 
you know, this problem wouldn't have happened if you hadn't achieved so much already, right? And so it's yeah. very good to kind of take a, a look back and be like, okay, it's not just about the problem, it's about the, the celebration. Um, but yes, yeah, there, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of fake wins for sure, right? Like companies have like test budgets, they try your product out as a test, and then they're like, sorry, we don't want it. But if you had like 30,000 companies using their test budget trying you out, you would be convinced that you had product market fit when you totally didn't, right? So it's, yeah, it's good to be cognizant of that. There was this one line from Paul Graham that I heard it. It's like, the problems never get easier. They just get more sophisticated. And I think that is like so true. It's like your AC is your AC works now, but now your you know offices in London are delayed. And that's the big problem now. So <laughs> it's true though. Like, what would you say was your favorite moment with Rally? Because it's all, it's been two years. Um I'm curious. Yeah. What 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 was the biggest the biggest win for you guys? There there's been there's been quite a few that like I look back to, but <laughs> you know, honestly, um, what was really fun was like the the things we were doing that were like super last minute that kept us up like super late. Like we yeah. we had like a product hunt launch and we were like stressing for it, and we were like we need to you know, change a bunch of stuff on the front end of Rally. We need to change the copy on the marketing. We need to figure out how to do a proper launch, who to invite, who to send this to. And so we were scrambling and scrambling and scrambling. And like um, a lot of it actually was pressure that Michael had put on us because he was like, why haven't you guys launched on Product Hunt? Like, you've had the product on the market, but you haven't been on Product Hunt. What's wrong with you guys, right? So there's all this like random pressure coming. Right. And uh, we launched and it was great. It like led to like, you know, 700 or so signups and like a lot of people using our product, even to this day, we've got customers thanks to that product don't launch. And so it was crazy. Just like moments like that, where you're just like locked in a room, really forcing yourself to work super late and you don't know if the result's going to be great, but you just assume it is. And then it, it actually ends up being much better than you thought it was. That's awesome though. Like th th I think those are the best moments though. Like the classic startup stories that it's like an 11th hour thing. Um, this is a bit, bit of a different question, but I'm always curious to ask this to founders. What are you passionate about that you don't get asked about a lot? Um, what am I passionate about? It's a good question. I think, uh, I think there's a number of things. I think I, I would say, I'd say passion is not the right question. I have a lot of curiosities. Um, sure. I, I'm yeah. very curious about how we can improve like education, especially for younger people. I, I think it's, it's a bit daunting that we're still teaching things like math and career studies and, and, and just courses that I think like aren't really super useful to people um, when they really should be learning more about like how to just A, be better humans, but also B, be more technical. So I think those are the two key areas of, of the future. Um, I actually started a summer camp when I was living in the UK uh, to help high school and middle school students get more engaged with technology. Um, and I thought it was like, the best way for them to actually meet product managers, meet technical people. And it seems like from what you're saying, uh, the MBA programs across Canada could also use something like that. Absolutely. Um, yeah, 100%. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'd, I'd be curious to see how education improves. I'd be curious to see how like um, how migration changes over time. Like I, I'm very, as, as an immigrant myself, like I, I have a lot of respect for people who end up coming to this country or other countries as refugees and migrants and how they end up learning the language, changing their culture, and actually becoming nationalized as part of that, that region. Um, I think it's super interesting to see how we can help people like that 
be more nationalized faster. Absolutely. On a bit, on a side note, I saw that you worked in Pakistan. It, I'm guessing that's where where you're from as well. Your family. Yeah, yeah. That's odd. Do you listen to Coke Studios? <laughs> uh, that's odd. Uh, we'll, we'll I don't. Do, we'll take that out. But Coke Studio, man, amazing music. Honestly, I love it. <laughs> like Sufi music is amazing. Honestly. <laughs> nice. Nice. Um, I've always, I've always curious to ask that, but okay. One, one other question I had for you was, um, at least in my opinion, it often appears that a lot of founders and like having that CEO position is often romanticized, but in a couple of conversations, I've really found that like founders tell me it's more like servant leadership than being a big shot. And I guess this might be. Your, it might be a bit of an anecdotal response, but like, what are some of the real tough questions that people should ask themselves, but before pursuing this route, or things that they should be mindful of? Um, I think there, there's a bunch of questions, but I th- let's try to categorize them. So, I'll try to break it down between mental state, company running, and then just dealing with chaos. And so mental state is like, am I mentally fit and, and upbeat or do I have a positive enough outlook to actually approach these problems? Right. Uh, because you get beat down so much, you get, you work really long hours, you're forced to say no to a lot of things. And are you able to actually do all of that and feel like you're still adding a lot of value to the world? Um, and I think like, like Elon had this like massive tweet rant where he just talked about like how, you know, if you need motivation, you shouldn't be an entrepreneur. And I think, I think what he was saying was if you need to constantly be pushed uh, to do work, if you need initiative, if you need to have a positive attitude, then perhaps right. entrepreneurship is not, not for you. Um, the second piece is like company running and company running involves learning very quickly. It involves understanding how to hire, how to deal with legal issues, how to sell, how to make sure the numbers make sense. And a lot of times you're, you're barely ever the smartest person in the room. And so you got to be okay with looking dumb, but asking the question anyways. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, when, especially when they come out of like Queens or Ivy, they, they don't want to do that. They don't want to ask dumb questions because they spent 10 years at McKinsey and they were a partner and everyone thought their question was super yeah. smart. Right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, and then, uh, and then the last piece uh, I would say is just like, um, there's just complexities of issues because you're dealing with people and there's things that are out of your control because you're dealing with systems that change on a regular basis. Yeah. And so sure. you've got to be, you've got to be okay with working with all sorts of different people and understanding that systems change very, very drastically. We are, I, I do want to be respectful of the time. I've got two questions, two more questions that number one, that advice piece. Um, but number two, do you think a lot of, do you think a lot of ambitious people mistake being an entrepreneur as like a solution for fulfillment and happiness because of how challenging it is and how big the reward can be at the end of the day, if it does work out? That's a a really good question, dude. Um, I would say there's a, there's a small chance that's true, but I also think the word entrepreneurship is a very blanket term. It's it's been overused for a lot of different things. You're right. Absolutely. I think ultimately you should do the hard thing that you want to do in your life. And perhaps leading to your second question about feedback, I think um, uh, T-Pain probably said it best, but like you, you should just do what you want. And uh, 
you know, he was like knocked hard for like auto tune and he was like made fun of for like choosing that. And like a lot of people said, like, that's just sad. That's like killing music. But right now everyone auto tunes. Right. And so he was ahead of the game. He made a decision. He was he was given a lot of bad rep for it. But um, now it's here to stay. And he did it because he wanted to. And so you should yeah. just do what you want to do. That's it. I really want to thank Ali for joining us today, not only by dedicating his time to the program, but also getting a bit more personal with his journey in entrepreneurship in the hopes that other people can relate to it. My name is Cassius Velichel, and this is Homeroom. Be sure to check us out on LinkedIn, YouTube, and Twitter at Homeroom Podcast. Thanks for listening.